And now for further progress through Dante's Purgatorio, here on Series 4 of the Evening Under Lamplight Podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. We're at Canto 10, Dante's first experiences on the other side of the gate, in Purgatory proper. The canto opens as Dante and Virgil step through the doorway, and then the gate is closed behind them. Dante can tell that the gate has shut because he hears the sound as it closes. He's content with that, and knows better than to look back to confirm with his eyes what his ears have told him. But why has the door made such a creaking noise? We learn the answer now. It's because it opens for so few people, excluding all those whose bad love makes them think that even though they are pursuing the things they love, they are therefore on the right path. The path Dante and Virgil have to follow here, climbing up to the next level, is not very easy. It's not very easy either for us to picture what this path looks like. Dante calls it a needle's eye, which suggests a tight fit. We're told it's a windy, zigzaggy path back and forth like waves. We'd better hug the cliff side, Virgil says, especially where it curves around. Now, some people propose that, as in some mythic tales, or like something out of Harry Potter, the path is in motion, twisting as they walk along it. I'm not sure why something as stable and solid as this mountain should suddenly start moving, but this is a possibility. But however we picture it, we must see the path as treacherous and difficult, needing great care to negotiate, and careful, slow steps. And finally, after about an hour's climbing, the path opens up onto a ledge, the first terrace of Purgatory. Dante tells us how wide it is, but as usual he doesn't give us any precise measurements, sizing it up instead in human terms. The path is wide enough for three men to lie end to end across it. Of, co of course this depends on the height of the men, but we're not worried about exact measurement. What we know is that it's wide enough so that people there don't have to walk in single file along it. There's room for a bit of community as they go around. But where is everybody? It's as empty as a desert, Dante says, and seems to stretch right around the mountain. Dante notices that the side of the path next to the mountain is impossible to climb up, because it's so steep, probably entirely vertical. In fact, he realizes that it's like, it's like a huge notice board, or like murals on a wall. It's made of white marble, with vivid carvings along it, so skillfully done that no sculptor, not even reality itself, could equal it. Dante passes along and describes three different scenes depicted there. First is the scene of the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel coming to the young girl Mary, delivering the news that she has been chosen as the one to bring forth that peace the whole world has been longing for over all the ages. It's so vividly depicted that Dante seems to hear the words being spoken, Gabriel's Ave, Hail Mary, and Mary's humble response, Ecce Ancilla Dei, Behold the Handmaiden of the Lord. Don't get so caught up in just this one image, Virgil tells Dante. So Dante moves on to a second carving on the rock face. It shows a cart drawn by oxen, the cart containing the Holy Ark of the Covenant. In the foreground are seven choirs singing, or are they just pictured singing? The ears aren't hearing any sound, but 
the picture is so vivid to the eyes that Dante seems to see the singing, and the same with the plumes of incense. To the eyes it seems that there really is all this fragrant smoke filling the air with what Browning called good, strong, thick, stupefying incense smoke. But the nose says, no, I'm not really smelling this. In the center of the carving is King David, the humble psalmist, wildly dancing, his robes pulled up high for better movement, but scandalously exposing his bare legs to the crowd. And over there, looking out of the window, is his queen Michal, looking down at David with displeasure and scorn. And then a third picture. It shows the Emperor Trajan, surrounded by mounted soldiers and their banners, on their way to battle, interrupted by a poor widow grabbing hold of the bridle of his horse, weeping and begging him to avenge the murder of her son. Dante can vividly imagine the scene coming to life, with a little back-and-forth exchange. Trajan replies to the widow, Yes, I'll help you, but, but wait until I come back from this campaign. But suppose you don't come back, she says, recognizing the real possibility that he'll die in battle. And Trajan knows this, and promises that if he doesn't return, his successor will take care of the matter for her. Uh-huh. She persists, and knows how to appeal to him next. Your successor doing this instead of you? What good is that to you? In other words, she's handing him what we call a mitzvah, a chance to do good, and he's turning away from it. But not for very long. Okay, he says, I'll do this for you. Justice requires it, and so does mercy, pity, compassion. Meanwhile, Virgil has noticed some people slowly coming their way. He sees their approach not as a way to learn something new about this terrace, but as a way to discover where the next place of ascent will be found. Dante takes his eyes off the sculpture, readjusting his sight, and stops to address us with a kind of trigger alert. Uh, you, um, you're going to see something shocking and painful, but don't let it put you off. Don't let it make you decide it's too painful to pursue this journey. Don't focus on the actual suffering we're about to show you, but see it in context. The suffering is a preparation for heavenly bliss. And after all, it's not like the suffering will go on forever, unlike those souls in hell, damned for all eternity. I mean, look, at, it, <laughs> at its longest, it won't last longer than until the end of the world. That's true, of course, though whether it will be consoling to a fearful reader, who can say? Dante can't make out what it is that's coming towards him. It doesn't look like people. I know what you mean, Virgil says. I had trouble making them out at first, too. But I can see now that these are indeed people, but they're all bent over, carrying huge stones on their backs and beating their breasts as they stagger on. Dante stops again to address us, or rather those of us who qualify as proud Christians, who might be repulsed by this painful picture Dante's about to give us, and who might then despite his caution a few minutes ago, be moved to turn back. Don't you see that we're all just worms? We're not high and mighty as you pretend you are. We're worms, or, or caterpillars, rather, destined to become butterflies. Remember our destiny. Let that keep your resolution strong. Back to these figures coming towards him looking like the carvings on some buildings of figures holding up a roof beam, knees up against the chest, sculptures that can recreate in us the pain we imagined they would be feeling if they were alive. 
Some of these souls moving along here are bent over more than others, depending on the size of the boulder they're struggling under. They're all in tears, not just in pain, but in desperation. I can't go on with this any more. And with that cry, the canto ends. The canto has a short introduction, reminding us of the need not to look back, and picking up the theme of love, which motivates all our actions. It just depends on whether it's good or bad love. Then we have the description of the first terrace, which leads into the three sets of images carved on the wall, which form the bulk of the canto. And at the end, we get our first glimpse of the souls suffering here at this level. We've now come to the first level of purgatory, the cleansing of the first of the seven deadly sins. It's pride first, the greatest, the weightiest sin. Pride is the basic sin which looks at the world as revolving exclusively around the individual ego. All the other sins grow from this. Nothing matters except as it affects myself. I'd prefer everything to elevate my ego and show me as the best around, but if I'm criticized, or if I have a fall, my ego can transform that so that I become the most deserving of pity. I'm still great. Vainglory is an aspect of pride, the aspect, I think, that promotes the ego, usually far more than can be justified. Sometimes it fools others. Sometimes, like in the emperor's new clothes, it takes an innocent child to see through the false front. But the emperor has no clothes. The virtue that counteracts pride is humility, which does not mean just abasing oneself, but it is the whole process of moving beyond ego vision to see our place in the larger community, knowing our strengths, knowing we're valuable, but also acknowledging that we're only part of a larger whole, and there are more important things than just our individual selves. And so, and so our task now, and for the next few cantos, is to see how Dante presents the aspects of pride and the ways we can heal ourselves to become genuinely humble. Let's look for a second at the first detail of the canto. Dante and Virgil have crossed over the threshold and are taking their first steps in this new land. The great gate closes behind them. How does Dante know this? He hears it, but he dare not turn around to confirm this with his eyes. He's learned the lesson he's just been given about never looking back. We get here at the beginning of the canto a hint of a theme we'll see again later, the issue of perception. Dante perceives the closing of the door through only one sense, hearing. He pointedly does not see that it's closed. Later in the canto, he will describe being able to see those sculpted images so vividly that he's able to hear the words they're speaking, even though his ears do not confirm that there's any sound of speaking. And his eyes can see the incense smoke so vividly that he can smell the incense, but only in his imagination— his mind's nose, we might say, his nose does not confirm that there's any incense burning around here at all. Our perceptual abilities are limited, but our imagination can be so affected by art that we can have the sensation of physical experience without our senses being involved. When we learn in the first stanza that only a few souls make it through the gate, we may be shocked. <laughs> How cynical is Dante? Well, the answer is that he's pretty cynical, or rather, he's seen enough of human evil to estimate the ratio of good to bad as weighing much more heavily on the side of bad. 
It all comes down to mal amour, as he says in the second line of the canto, bad love. We'll be hearing a lot more about the centrality of love as we go along. But here, Dante is confirming the classical idea that it is love that motivates all our actions. In other words, evil deeds are not produced by some active force of evil, but by love gone wrong. That's one reason, I think, why Satan does not figure large in Dante's universe. There is no evil adversary who, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Because the impulse to evil does not come from outside, but from some misdirected love within us. Thus, what's important is examining our inner selves, which is, which is what I'm suggesting we try to do on these podcasts. So it's love that motivates us, often perverted love, like loving ourselves over all others, sometimes deficient love, like sloth, where we just can't feel drawn by the love of doing anything much, or too much love in the wrong place, such as the love of amassing more money than we'd ever need. We saw this principle at work in the Inferno, and, and we'll see it again here. One of the things bad love does, Dante says, is to try to make the crooked path straight. I take that to mean that bad love, twisted love as the Hollanders say, tries to justify its twisted ways of living by convincing itself that these ways are straight. We saw this, for instance, in the famous episode in Hell with Francesca, who had a passionate love for her brother-in-law Paolo, an illicit twisted love, but she, but she convinced herself that it was straight. Love made her do all this, and so it was okay. Well, no, it was love aimed in the wrong direction. Mal amour, as Dante says. And she should have resisted it, not given in to it. And then, is it any coincidence that after this we see Dante himself following a crooked path? Is this a test to see how well he can discern crookedness? Virgil comments that this path requires very careful attention, and this sounds like a commentary on what had just been said. We need careful attention to the kind of love that's motivating us, lest we twist our understanding of what we're doing, and like Francesca, think that the crooked path is actually straight. Now let's move to those images carved on the wall. We'll find on each of these levels that there are three examples of the virtue opposite to the sin being purged. Examples there to motivate and encourage the suffering souls, to remind them of the goal they're suffering to attain. The first example is taken from the life of Mary, the second from the Hebrew Bible, and the third from Roman history. Dante says much in this canto about the power of art to move us, if the art is really good, of course, which all art is here on this divinely created mountain world, and which, we have no doubt, Dante's own art is really good able to move and inspire us. Otherwise, why bother? Skillful art, Dante says, is even better than nature. Art can highlight important details, and having a frame, it can focus our attention more than the chaotic mess of the real world in front of us can do. The three carvings in this canto show the way skillful artwork can affect the imagination to produce effects we would normally expect to come from our senses. A skillful depiction of people in conversation can make us imagine the very words they must be saying. Skillful depiction of incense smoke can evoke the fragrance in our imagination as though we were actually in the presence of the censor. These images are what Dante calls visibile parlare, visible speech, 
or we might say they are words translated into pictures, or maybe pictures evoking words. Dante in the poem sees the pictures and imagines the words or the fragrance. We work the other way. We read the words of the poem and can imagine the pictures in the story. Dante is obviously immersed in these images, but Virgil seems less absorbed. While Dante forgets everything else in his engagement with the Annunciation scene, Virgil has to nudge him to move on. And while Dante is still absorbed in that final picture, Virgil is already looking away so that it's he who spots the figures coming along the paths towards him. I like what Hollander says. Virgil resembles the less art-responsive member of a couple in a museum waiting for his friend, totally absorbed, to finish looking so that their tour may continue. And now we must consider each of these three speaking sculptures. First, we have the Annunciation scene, the Archangel Gabriel coming to Mary, hailing her as full of grace because she has been chosen to bear the child who will bring into the world that peace we have all been yearning for since history began. Mary at first questions how this can be since she's a virgin, but when she's told the Holy Spirit will do the work in her, she utters her famous response, Ecce Ancilla Dei, Behold the Handmaiden of the Lord. In other words, here I am, ready to do whatever you need me to do. What kind of humility is depicted here? The situation is that you're called to greatness, what could be greater than being the one to bring this peace into the world, and you humbly offer yourself as an agent of the divine plan. We see the humility of putting aside your own concerns, leaving it up to them, putting aside any objections. I'm not even married, how can I have a child? And just following the calling. And notice there's no pride, no vaunting about how great you are to be so full of grace. I think this can be seen in our lives if there is an occasion when we're called to some responsible office or some prestigious position. Let's take a minor example. Suppose you get a sudden phone call to say that the chairman of the meeting you're attending tomorrow has gone down ill and asking you to take over and chair the meeting. The proud response would be to make a big to-do about getting all the proper papers and an even louder fuss if someone doesn't get you the right papers. And at the meeting, you vaunt yourself and bully the others because, after all, you're the important one now, aren't you? You can see how this can be applied also to many people holding political offices. And what is the humble way, the way inspired by Mary? You may feel you're not up to it, but if they've asked you, then you'll do your best. You understand if all the papers cannot be passed on to you at this last minute and try to work around it. At the meeting, you focus on what needs to get done and on what others may have to contribute, rather than on your own control over everyone in the room. You see how this works. If the example makes you squirm, as it does me, then it's working. That squirming is, in a much lesser scale, one of those heavy rocks we have to carry on our back. Then King David. The story is that King David brought the Holy Ark to Jerusalem, drawn slowly in an ox cart. This ark was a chest supposed to contain the original stones of the Ten Commandments, in other words, a direct material communication from God to the Israelites the most holy objects now coming to rest in David's city. David leads the procession, dancing in joy before the cart as it comes into the city, a, disgra a disgraceful display of uncontrolled fervor, not to mention his semi-nudity, 
certainly not the kind of dignity you'd expect from the king himself. And that's why Michal, the daughter of King Saul, looks down in pride at that display, scorning her husband for disgracing the royal family. Dante reminds us that because of her rejection of David's joyful dancing here, she will remain barren. Pride, we're being told, produces nothing fruitful, only sterility. But David dares to be what Dante calls both less than and greater than a king. He was greater than a mere king because he was throwing himself into the divine joy that is higher than political dignity. What kind of humility is this? David puts aside his royal dignity in the service of something higher, and he dares to face the scorn of his wife and his people. Something else matters more than his own prestige. And in our lives, where do we enter with unselfconscious joy into some activity that we know is the right thing at the moment, but is not in keeping with our dignity or with social expectations? It might be something as simple as going out on a windy day to fly a kite when we should be in the office. Or, a better example, if we stop before a street beggar and sit down next to him against the wall, chatting with him like a fellow human being, seeing the world from his perspective, getting our trousers dirty or wet but not minding it, while the person we've been walking along with looks down at us in disgust. He's filthy. You'll catch something from him, and don't give him any money. They only spend it on drink. But we are being King David before the Ark, a model of humility. And last, there's the Roman example, in the person of the Emperor Trajan. Dante refers to the fact, legend, that Pope Gregory the Great prayed for the soul of Trajan, and the prayers were effective, raising the Emperor from limbo into salvation. Imagine what Virgil feels looking at this non-Christian pagan like himself who was able to rise into glory while Virgil himself is stuck in limbo, except for this brief excursion with Dante. Sunt lacrimae rerum, those tears at the heart of the pagan world Virgil celebrated. This example of humility shows us someone putting aside the call of duty for a seemingly less important but more urgent call of duty. There's all the panoply around Trajan and the necessity to get his army moving. There's his pride in doing what is right, his pride in being a good leader, a pride that would have him overlook such insignificant things as a mere widow's request. But she humbles him, and, and he agrees to the humility, and stops the more important thing he's doing in order to help a person in distress. We know how this can work in our lives. Let's go back to that beggar in the street as we walk quickly past, rushing to a late appointment. Please, can you help me get a cup of coffee? Look, I'm late. I'll give you something later. Bye. Or not even that. Just that promise we make to ourselves as we rush past, not even speaking to the beggar. Y yeah, I'll put money into his cup later on my way back. But suppose we come back a different way, or by the time we come back the beggar is gone. Are we so proud of this engagement we're rushing off to and consider so important that we can't reach out to the engagement right before us at the moment? Let's be Trajan and dismiss our pride, getting our priorities right. Before we finish, we should consider that new crowd of souls who make their entrance towards the end of the canto. Before we see them, we get a caution from Dante not to let what we're about to see, that is, these souls suffering, not to let it put us off our resolution to reform ourselves. 
we always have to keep in mind the goal we're working towards. This is essential when we're going through suffering we have voluntarily chosen. On a much smaller scale, it's like agreeing to have an operation, in spite of the inevitable pain and after-effects, because we know that this operation is being carried out so we can be cured, if not healed, sometime soon. Well, at first there doesn't seem anything very daunting coming along. In fact, Dante can't even make out what it is coming slowly towards him. We might say, on a metaphorical level, that he's having a little difficulty recognizing the elements of pride in himself a pride that we have noticed now and then in the poem. These souls are bent double from the loads they're carrying. Dante compares this to the corbels, the little statues up near the roof of older buildings, decorations really, but also practical pieces holding the roof in place. Sometimes these figures would be depicted bent double from the weight of the roof. So here's another reference in this canto to a work of art and to the power the art has upon our imagination. Specifically here, the bent-over figure might be so realistic that it makes us imagine, and thus feel, the insufferable pain of all that pressure on its back. There's a nice dance here. Some stonemason at one time carved this figure, which has moved Dante, and he supposes his readers also. Dante then transforms this image from stone into words on the page, so that we, in turn, can experience the same response to the words that Dante felt to the stone. You with me? Unreal pictures, that is, art, can create feelings analogous to what we experience in real life. So we say we feel cramped when we look at that corbel. Let's go further. Dante has shown us only briefly now, in more detail soon, a picture in words of these souls bent over in pain. Can we transfer that painful feeling aroused by the corbels, transfer that over to these souls with their burden, so we can also feel what those burdened souls are feeling as they move along? And then the crucial next step. Can we see that the suffering of these proud souls, depicted in Dante's art, can we see that it corresponds to the suffering we too feel when we are conscious of the weight of pride pressing us down? When we are aware, in other words, that we have just been too full of our own importance as we rushed past the beggar on the street, are we able to feel a pain comparable to the pain of having a heavy rock on our back? Are we willing to bow down double in penance and let our willingness to feel this pain help promote our healing? If so, the poetic images in this canto have done their work for us, or their work with us. And what sustains us as we are weighed down with shame and regret for having been too proud to stop for the beggar? Dante gives us the image of the worm. We're just worms. Yes, self-reproach can keep telling us this. Yet it's not really a worm, but a caterpillar, and we submit to the humble, humiliating, lowering, because we know that through this we will emerge as a butterfly, or something like one. Keep your eyes on the goal. We need this hope of transformation, because in the final line of the canto, Dante shows us that these souls are so overcome that they feel they simply cannot go on. But they do go on, and we'll see more about them in the next canto. See you there.